Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Buck Sexton joining you now. Appreciate you being here. I've got some breaking news for you. Got some fun stuff to talk to you about here. Or at least some interesting stuff. Pretty serious. I like I like starting the show with I got breaking news, and then I just kind of I'm like the guy on Survivor who's like, "Here's who's getting voted off the island," right after this break. Uh, hey, you know, got to get those ad dollars flowing for Survivor. I understand. Uh, here's what I have for you that is new and and interesting on the whole Russia dossier business, right? The whole Russia dossier situation. Um, the latest claim is that the Hillary Clinton campaign, and this is in a huge, huge banner up on Drudge, and people are giving this a lot of attention now, may have broken the law, broken FEC law, uh, by not disclosing what they were paying that law firm to do. Here is a, there, there, are, there are a few write-ups of it, uh, and here is one courtesy of the Washington Times. Hillary Clinton's campaign and the Democratic National Committee violated federal or violated. Yeah, it is federal campaign finance law by failing to disclose payments for a dossier. I need to stop making that so French, but I'm sorry. A dossier on Donald Trump, according to a complaint filed Wednesday with the Federal Election Commission. The complaint from the nonprofit campaign legal center said the Democrats effectively hid the payments from public scrutiny, contrary to the requirements of federal law. By law, campaign and party committees must disclose the reason money is spent and its recipients. Oh, my. Let's uh, let's dive into this one together, shall we? You ready? Cannonball. Here we come. Uh They paid a law firm and the whole rationale for this, right? The the DNC, on behalf of Hillary Clinton, during the election, paid a law firm to then find, uh, to then contract with Fusion GPS and Fusion GPS found Christopher Steele and Christopher Steele's all over Russia, digging up all this dirt about Donald Trump. Nonsense, but dirt and intended to harm not just his reputation, but his candidacy for uh, the presidency, which he then won. Make America great again. That's right. He won. Um, But here's the problem with this. They clearly did this to create some plausible deniability. They uh, set this up in this way so that we would all be able to, or the Democrats would be able to uh, tell the public 
that this was just legal services, you see. But no, 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 that's not. And you'll notice I mentioned this yesterday. You can't just pay someone else to do what would be unethical for you to do. Right. That, that doesn't make it OK. You know, if I have an insider, if I have an inside uh, track on a stock trade and I pay somebody else to be the one who makes the stock trade on my behalf, I'm, I'm still going to jail. Right. It doesn't mean, oh, well, so I didn't do it. I just gave him money because I like him. And then he happened to trade on this information. Things happen. The Democrat, the DNC, the Democrat apparatus for Hillary's election here, uh, was clearly trying to hide the oppo research effort. You see, at first, they were thinking that this protected them. Oh, well, we don't. Yeah, Russians and Steele, Christopher Steele speaking to Russians all over the place. And that information makes it back into the D.C. ecosystem, makes it into the newsrooms of all these major news outlets and finds its way even into the FBI. The FBI takes it so seriously that they briefed it to the president in an intelligence briefing, which is appalling, by the way. As somebody who knows a little something about intelligence briefings, I couldn't believe it. Uh, just giving you a heads up, Mr. President, people are saying this unsubstantiated stuff about you on the Internet in some places. Really? James Comey, everybody. James Comey. Uh, and now we see that with all that coming out, they're saying, well, hold on a second. They didn't know. They didn't know because, you know, they paid this law firm to go do it for them. Oh, but you see, they didn't disclose. The DNC did not disclose as per this complaint about an FEC violation. They didn't provide the necessary transparency for just why they were paying this dirty tricks outfit known as Fusion GPS to work with a former spy to work with some Russians to take down Trump. They didn't want people to know. Oh, yeah. And millions of dollars exchanging hands here. I should know. This is not little. This is not small potato stuff with this law firm. It reminds me of um, I'm trying to. Remember, oh, yeah, Michael Clayton, right? Wasn't that that movie with George Clooney where he uh, plays a a fixer for a law firm? Or there's even a, if it's even possible to think there's a darker version of similar storyline is going on with a a show uh, out in Los Angeles uh, with Liev Schreiber, I think, playing the main. I can't, uh, no, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. I will. It's on uh, Showtime, I think. But nonetheless, a fixer for a law firm who makes the problems go away however they have to make them go away. And what we see is that the Democrats were trying very hard to both destroy Trump but also to hide the hand here that was going to do it. And this may be a problem for them. It is also funny. I mean, there's a lot of layers here, right? This is why I say get ready to dive into this. It's also funny that the people who are like, we need Facebook ad transparency. And the Russians spent like like $5,000 trying to, you know, say mean stuff about Hillary. They've, they're all about that. And we're hearing there's hearings and talks and, oh, we need more transparency in the ad space and, and all this stuff. And now we see that. The DNC, the same DNC that said its servers were hacked but didn't tell the FBI right away and thought that they had figured it out. There's all kinds of shady business going on, right? But the, the same DNC that 
and the same Democrat Party that's in, in a state of perpetual outrage about the lack of transparency when it comes to online political advocacy of one kind or another and saying that the Russians cost Hillary the election and all this Facebook ads and it was all targeted and they were ignoring or actively breaking. Well, they're breaking it either way, but they're either willfully or not. Looks like breaking FEC law here, Federal Election Commission law, by not disclosing what's going on. So they tried to hide that they were working with Fusion GPS and Christopher Steele on this dossier. They lied about it for over a year, as we established yesterday. And they tried to hide it in their official paperwork. What's the big deal? If it's all okay, what's the big problem? I just want someone to answer that question. And Trump has made it very clear. He spoke today to the press, kind of an impromptu session. And here's what he had to say about le dossier. With this fake dossier, it was made up and... I understand they paid a tremendous amount of money, and Hillary Clinton always denied it. The Democrats always denied it. And now only because it's going to come out in a court case, they said, yes, they did it. They admitted it, and they're embarrassed by it. But I think it's a disgrace. It's just really a very, it's a very sad, it's a very sad commentary on politics in this country. He's not the only one. Even the relatively uh, chill... I think we could describe Rand Paul as he always strikes me as very chill, very mellow, you know, occasionally surly, but but also mellow at the same mellow most of the time. He he thinks that this is uh, a bit of an issue. It amazes me for a year. The Democrats have been whining and whining and whining and saying they lost because of the Russians. Now it looks like it's really their subterfuge, their ideas. They're buying this dossier. But also, you know, there are rumors that the leaks that went to WikiLeaks on all the Clinton emails came from the Democrats as well. So it's kind of funny. Everything they've blamed on Republicans, it looks like maybe they were the ones responsible for. Whoa, Rand Paul pulling out the old uh, DNC were the ones who leaked the DNC emails. And, well, hey, Rand Paul is going to get some attention on that one, I'm sure. But his earlier point about the Russian narrative was also echoed uh, during Trump's impromptu today. The whole Russian thing is what it's turned out to be. Uh, This was the Democrats coming up with an excuse for losing an election. It's an election that's very hard for a Democrat to lose because the Electoral College is set in such a way that it's very hard to lose that election for a Democrat. They lost it. They lost it very badly and very easily. I mean, you look at the votes. It was 306 to what? 223 or something. They lost it by a lot. They didn't know what to say. So they made up the whole Russia hoax. Now it's turning out that the hoax has turned around and you look at what's happened with Russia and you look at the uranium deal and you look at the fake dossier. So that's all turned around. The Russia hoax is turned around. The president is enjoying this moment, I think. Uh, and, and also, and we'll get into this a bit more, the, the way the press is covering this, we, we see it and we understand why we can't trust them on other issues, right? They can run an apple is a, ba- you know, an apple is an apple is a banana is a banana ads all day long. But when there's a major story like this and they try to pretend that it's nothing, you know, keep in mind, and this is this is important, not just for this Russia dossier story, but in general, as a means of understanding the way media narratives are always a form of gamesmanship, right? There's always uh, 
ideology and bias and manipulation at play with these major networks, and they're trying to promote certain ideas and theories even in the uh, hard news coverage that they have. Uh, Just understand that when they do this, uh, when they try to suppress a story that is so profoundly important, it sends as strong a message as when they get it entirely wrong, right? <laughs> when when they are trying so desperately not to talk about it. And I know that they'll say, oh, but Buck, the Washington Post broke the story. Well, at some point, they also realize that it's going to come out and they might as well be the ones, you know, this is PR 101, they might as well be the ones who tell the story initially so that they can try to shape the narrative of it and also they can be the ones who try to put it away. I mean, you know, we've done everything there is to be done here. See, no big deal. Nothing to see here, folks. Move right along. Uh, but on this one, and then there's just the profit motive, too. Right? They, need, they need big scoops sometimes. And I think there are still some journalists, and maybe I'm giving them way too much credit, although, look, Maggie Haberman, New York Times, was saying that all the Democrats were lying to her, big Democrats lying about this dossier for over a year. I mean, she, she took them to task. Look, give her credit. She hates Trump, and she's dishonest about Trump. But on this one, she, she stood up and took the heat. Uh, there are some journalists left, I think, who just choke a little bit on the lies and the deceit, and 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 occasionally they will find themselves either forced to or finally capable of doing actual journalism. It does happen. It does, you know, it does happen. The random act of journalism does occur sometimes. Uh, anyway, I I, I want to get into the responses to all this and. And also, one more note, one more thing I want to add into this stew that we are preparing together this hour on all the dossier allegations and with Uranium One last week, too. It's, it's been a rough, rough spell here for the Democrats. Uh, but what if the dossier was a critical component of harnessing the federal government and, and harnessing the law enforcement and maybe even beyond just traditional law enforcement apparatus as a, to weaponize it against Trump, right? There's already some reporting to indicate that this is what happened. So the dossier was the basis for using tools of the federal government. The fact that this made its way, this Clinton DNC paid for smear piece made its way into, a pre, into an official presidential briefing, everybody. I think that's significant. And we've seen so much about this unmasking, and there, there is a lot of smoke here. We know there's a fire somewhere, and this may be a very critical piece in that. This funding of the dossier, they've been fighting this. We had, we had uh, Kim Strassalon talking about how Fusion GPS was shady, what, two weeks ago, and how they didn't want to talk about the funding. And now here we find out why. Oh, that's why. But there's something else going on here. We want to talk about collusion. There's the collusion with Russians that the media is obsessed with. What about the collusion between the the possible, the possible collusion between the FBI, the media, the DNC, Confusion GPS, and the Russians? I think we should start to think about it. Start to draw some interesting analysis out of this and we will do that as i said this is how opposition research works it wouldn't be a surprise to anyone that the dnc and the clinton campaign uh 
were funding this. It contained allegations uh, about their their opponent in this. So it is just it's it's a kind of a Trump dream talking point now, frankly, that has been made worse by sort of the mystery and the secrecy around that. I don't think anyone close to the Clinton campaign is that surprised about that they've created sort of a problem out of something that didn't have to be a problem. But it doesn't change the fact of the matter that what is important here and what we should be focusing on is what was what not even this dossier in particular, but what were the campaign's connections to Russia? We still don't have disclosure to that. Frankly, that's what I'm most interested in. I think that's what most journalists are interested in is how far these oh, yeah, uh, we know these that. connections go between Russia. We know that's what most journalists are interested in. That that's uh yeah, Megan Murphy over uh, over at Bloomberg or of Bloomberg. That was an amazing array. You if you really uh pull that apart, if you unpack that whole slew of statements, that uh, that run on thought about what's going on here. First of all, I love that she's like, you know, most journalists are still focused on Russia collusion. And we're like, you know what? We've, we've got that. Uh, we, we are aware that Russia-Trump collusion is what journalists, many of whom who have staked whatever's left of their careers on this, that's what they want to focus on. But there was something else in the middle there of that very uh, j- jumbled series of, of uh, rationales and rationalizations for the uh, dossier. And it was that once again, you'll hear more of this, I think. Once again, no one's surprised that the Clinton camp made a problem out of something that's not a problem. This is the most giant pile of malarkey. You want to talk about talking points? Giant pile of malarkey thing that is said by uh, Clintonistas and, and Democrat media. They said this about the email thing, too. Like, oh, well, if she hadn't lied about the emails... It wouldn't have been a big deal. They, she creates it. You know, if Clinton hadn't lied about uh, sex in the White House, Bill Clinton now, that's right, I'm still a Clinton. If he hadn't lied about sex in the White House, then it wouldn't have been a big deal. You know, their scandals, they say, are always self-inflicted. No, that's not that's actually not true. Their scandals are their scandals. They just lie on top of it because they are near compulsive liars. One who used to run the government and another one who almost ran the government. And they wonder why every little Trump exaggeration doesn't get people all worked up on the right. Uh, but I, I love that. You know, once again, the Clint- once again, the Clintons, yeah, by funding, by covertly funding opposition research on a presidential candidate that is on the basis for accusations and allegations from that same uh, from the news media of a president guilty of treason and people around him who should go to prison. Uh, that's a that's a nothing story. It's that the Clintons lied about it or that they didn't come clean right away on it. That's the problem. Yeah. And this these are people I'm, I'm playing clips. Here. These are people who are paid for their knowledge and opinions. That's kind of terrifying, isn't it? I know a lot of you are sitting around nodding your head like, yeah, that is terrifying. And yet it's where we are. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. You have said previously in the last 24 hours, you don't believe Hillary Clinton knew about this either. Is that right? Oh, I don't know. I, I don't haven't know. Asked. I okay. haven't spoken if, to her. No. Okay. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. Um, shouldn't shouldn't she know? Shouldn't you, someone so high up in the campaign, be informed of this? Well, I mean, she may have known, but uh, the degree of exactly what she knew is is, is beyond my knowledge. For instance, like, it could have been that uh, a decision was made to authorize Perkins Coie to do some kind of commission, some kind of research, but then decisions about, uh, you know, going out and finding Fusion GPS, finding Christopher Steele. I mean, she may or may not have been aware of that level of detail.
All right, this is amazing. I mean, you see the <laughs> you see the way that some journalists are uh, talking about this whole series of revelations about the dossier. I mean, they are delusional. They are in some other stratosphere, in a different atmosphere, and they, they are outside of the Virgo supercluster on this one. The astronomy nerds out there right now are like, hell. Uh, but no, they, they really have no uh, no bearings whatsoever on this. Uh, they just are so dedicated to the idea of Trump Trump's presidency getting revoked. It's like it never happened. They can end the nightmare with this one story. Now that it's going the other direction, now that it looks like it could cast a huge shadow over not just the Clintons, because let's be honest, when you have no integrity or dignity to protect, who really cares? but over the whole Democrat left-wing apparatus that surrounds them, over the ties between Obama and Clinton, the DOJ, the FBI, and the media all working together in concert. I mean, you want to talk about a swamp situation. What could be swampier than the possibility? I understand, yet we don't have all the details, and I'm going to try to parse and be very careful about what is fact versus what is theory here. But we have so far the beginnings of a narrative, of a storyline that the Obama administration covered for Hillary while she was engaged and and while her whole Clinton corporation was engaged in dirty, corrupt business with the Russians. And then later on, the Clintons, who had longstanding Russia ties and the Russians, who had already been corrupting our nuclear energy sector under the Obama administration, the Clintons and the DNC reached out to a guy and he specifically went to Russia to talk to Russians about dirt on Hillary, on uh, Donald Trump. That was then the basis for all kinds of investigations in newsrooms, was eventually released publicly by BuzzFeed and was looked at by the FBI. They even may have paid for part of the dossier. And they briefed this to the president after he won. And then this was the basis for the stories about Russia collusion. I mean, it is hard to fathom how at the end of all this, some very powerful people in the Democrat Party don't look absolutely terrible. <laughs> right? I mean, it is hard to imagine, at least in, in, as far as I see it right now, how there aren't some Democrats who at least lose all their credibility in their careers over this, if not perhaps even their freedom. It depends. Yeah, I've been consistent all along. I don't think that you're allowed to create these artificial firewalls of foreign information about a U.S. election. And I keep running into this with people and they say, oh, it's, you know, you just think in different terms about this. You know, you're some you've been brainwashed by the CIA or something. No, I, I it, Information that comes from foreign sources. So does that do Brits count? Do Russians Russians obviously count, but do Brits count as well? I mean, where do we draw the line? If if a if a English reporter were to sit down, a British reporter were to sit down with a U.S. candidate for any office of any kind and say, hey, I've got some stuff on your opponent. Is he supposed to say, no, don't tell me about that because you're from Britain? I, I don't. I don't understand where this line is. There was there was so much outrage over the initial meeting in Trump Tower where there was no real information exchanged. And now we see that the Clintons, through an intermediary, and they better hope there's no virtual trail between them, the intermediary, and the Russians, 
that shows that the Clintons or Hillary or some of her top people knew about this. Uh, but they seem to think it's OK. I should note that Hillary's guy, Fallon, Brian Fallon, has said that uh, he may have known uh, that her campaign was behind the funding of the infamous dossier linking the, you know, I mean, this is at some point these people are no longer credible. And at some point they really deserve uh, the opprobrium of the public. You have on MSNBC. Megan Murphy of Bloomberg insisting that journalists should avoid worrying about who paid for the dossier and instead should focus on whether or not the Trump campaign should collude with Russia. So there is an active effort to just go out there and say, you know what, don't worry about uh, don't worry about any of this stuff that's just come out this week. Just stay on. And they're open about at least some of them are open about it. Just stay on the. Trump collusion narrative, because that's what gets eyeballs. That's what gets clicks, generates revenue and is central to hashtag resistance. All right. So the Democrats are running for cover or just in a state of denial when it comes to this turnabout on the Russia dossier. And I'm joined now by a friend and a special guest, David Harsanyi. He is a senior editor at The Federalist. He's also a nationally syndicated columnist. And I should note as well, the author of the forthcoming book, First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun from the Revolution to Today. Very exciting. Mr. Harsanyi, great to have you, sir. Always good to be here. Well, I was pleased to see both in, in, in writing on, on The Federalist and then also on the Twitter and the social media you just taken a hammer to all the, eh, the dossier is nothing. Eh, we shouldn't really care about this coming from the left. David, tell us why that's garbage. <laughs> well, I think using the very structure and the very sort of all the rules that we were given over the past year uh, about what, you know, Russian collusion is and what, what Russian interference is, this meets all those standards, right? So I'm, I'm just playing by the rules I was given this year. I think uh, when you, as a campaign, pay someone to bring you oppo research that's provided in part by a, a foreign hostile government, uh, that you are, uh, you know, that you're, you're guilty, just as guilty or even more maybe guilty than Donald Trump, using the standards that you have given me. Well, also, if we do a little so so what's been established is that DNC and Hillary's campaign officially paid Fusion GPS. And now there there was also I even saw Jake Tapper get a little caught up in, in the well, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, the confusion here by saying, well, they it was paid for originally by a Republican. Right. Th- that's, that's a myth, th- which is a myth. I mean, that's not true that they paid a Republican paid money for oppo research to fuse in GPS. But Christopher Steele, the Russia dossier, from what we are told, that all came later. Also, I don't we don't know. Listen, there's probably a lot more to the story. So we're just working on the facts that have been reported that, yeah, someone, uh, some Republican. We don't know if it's just a primary candidate or some Jeb donor. Bush. Yeah, it could be what it could, might be. Um you know, paid Fusion GPS to uh, for Oppo research. But Steele, according to the Washington Post story, was hired after that fact. So I don't, you know, they make it sound like it's just one, it's one in the same dossier or one in the same file. It's not. It's something new. You're getting this information from Russia and paying for it. 
it's a very different ball game. So they're they're just trying to do to conflate those two things uh, to make it sound like Republicans are just as involved in this, which is doesn't seem to be. Now, now can we do a, a little? No, you've been very good about sticking just to the facts. I obviously am, I'm I'm chomping at the bit here to just go wild with some conspiracy theories because that's so much fun. And it makes for great radio. But I won't push you in that direction. I will, however, ask you to help me read between the lines, and we can we can couch and gauge all of this. In, in terms of probability, right? I mean, forget about the fact that the Democrat left media has been acting like Trump is guilty of treason, and this has been proven all along. Okay, so we'll put that aside for a moment. We'll, we'll do our own thing here. But, for example, the notion to me that Christopher Steele was talking to high-level Russians about Donald Trump when he is running for president of the United States and that the Russian government would not have been aware of this, or Russian government officials, perhaps ones that he was speaking to, would not have been aware of this and therefore influenced the information they were giving, I find that very hard to believe. It seems very hard to believe. And, and if you believe, that, listen, I think that the sort of the belief on the left, at least, is that Russia wanted Donald Trump to be president. And that might be true. It might, you know, might be true. But I think more than that, they want to create mayhem and undermine elections, right? So I, I, I'm not sure that they wouldn't give information just to sort of blow things up anyway. I mean, this is just, you know, I don't know that this is true. But surely they knew who he was and why he was looking for information. And surely they would sell him or give him things that would you know, create chaos and unrest in the United States, at least it seems to me. You probably know more about this stuff than I do, but that seems like a reasonable, uh, a reasonable, I don't know, you know, a reasonable... Theory. We can call it a theory. theory, Just a theory. Yeah, I I just didn't want to say conspiracy theory about something. No, it's just a theory. Not all theories are conspiracies, right? right? So that's okay. Uh, But we're speaking to David Harsani, senior editor at The Federalist. He's written about this on thefederalist.com. Uh, David, one more thing that I just this is a little bit of a of a diversion, but I think or a digression, but I think it's worth mentioning this whole notion that Russia wanted Trump to win so badly is very interesting because Russia has an open cable news propaganda platform that gets a tremendous amount of views on YouTube in this country called Russia Today. I actually know socially a former a former Russia Today host. Russia Today is Kremlin funded. Russia Today has been. Uh, out there for a long time. And if you look at what it pushes in terms of its agenda, it, it aligns overwhelmingly with the Bernie Sanders left of the Democratic Party. I just think this is always skipped over somehow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, I, the, the funny thing is that this whole Manchurian candidate that, you know, everyone just assumed Donald the Russians wanted Donald Trump completely and that, you know, he was just this candidate that had bought, you know, colluded with Russia, all that. It actually falls on the dossier a little bit because that's when, when all this stuff sort of broke that's when everyone assumed if you remember i think it was in january whenever when it first broke and buzzfeed put it up and actually we were talking about it before all newsrooms you can imagine every major newsroom was probably trying to track down every little thing they could in that dossier it sort of drove and generated that whole collusion stuff in the beginning now i'm not saying that nothing happened i'm not saying that manafort or someone didn't take money but this dossier was more, had more impact on post-election stuff than any piece of fake news in existence. And yet, what are we talking about? We're talking about Facebook all the time instead of this. I think that's a very good point, by the way. Trump often talks about how the, you know, the news and fake news, and this has become a term that is in our, our everyday lexicon now that wasn't before. And the dossier, from everything we've seen so far and based on all the evidence thus presented, 
uh, or presented thus far, the dossier might be the greatest piece of fake news in, in recent memory. I mean, certainly since Dan Rather's National Guard documents. Right. I mean, I, I'm sure some there are things in there that are you have to make these things somewhat plausible, right? So um, there might be things in there that are true. I, I don't know. Um, but as just as a whole, it's been the most consequential piece of fake news that exists. I mean, we're, we're trying to pass laws now to control what ads can be run on Facebook and things like that. When you had every major news organization willfully, or not everyone, but many of them and many reporters doing Fusion GPS's bidding when they knew that this information probably came from the Russians. I mean, isn't that a bigger story? Not that I want to censor anyone, but, you know, but, but the Facebook thing seems to be just a distraction from, from a much bigger story. Can I also ask why, and this is where Maggie Haberman uh, was reminded, uh, she's a New York Times reporter, very anti-Trump all along, but does do, does do a, a good bit of actual reporting, just comes from an anti-Trump perspective. Uh, but she was willing to say that, because this is the truth, that People had been lying. Uh, senior Democrats, important people in the Hillary Clinton circle and at the DNC had been lying and lying uh, e- effusively, right, L- lying intensely about any knowledge or any connection to the dossier for over a year. One, that's pretty important, I think, in our whole narrative. And two, I think it's amazing to watch Democrats pile on that for, you know, you're not allowed to say anything that helps Trump, even if it's what's blatantly true. Right. Two things. I mean, I think if, you know, if something is completely innocent, you don't hide it, you don't lie about it. Um, But I would just in their defense, maybe say that once this Russia thing started blowing up, maybe it just would have undermined, you know, would have undermined the entire narrative that the media was involved in to be, you know, to to know that that, that Hillary had also paid in. So, but but yeah, you don't hide something that's completely innocent, do you? I mean, why you why do you need to lie about it for a year? I, the only reason they actually probably leaked the story themselves, this is another theory of mine, is that that sooner or later they're going to have to speak to someone in Congress. There's no way uh, they could avoid testifying forever. Uh, well, they're, they're desperately yeah. trying to hide the funders of Fusion GPS I and mean, the people that were paying them. That's another thing. I mean, if you if you notice the the wording, it just says that Hillary and the DNC were part of. I forget how they word it or frame it, but they they weren't the only people funding uh, Fusion GPS either. So I'm interested to know who else was. I'm also interested to know which Republican was involved in this earlier. Even though, yeah, it wasn't the Steele dossier, but I just would want to know because uh, Fusion GPS was in bed with the Russians even before then, right? Trying to undermine sanctions. Yeah. I mean, and I was just, for you Jeb fans out there. I was just joking. It's not in any way been reported or proven that it's Jeb. But if I had to bet money, but it's not reported. So anyway. Well, listen, another theory is that there are a lot of people who were big on pushing that who were associated with Jeb online. I mean, and I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know either. We'll have to find what is the single biggest question, David, before we let you go. What is the single biggest question about this whole Russia dossier mess that you want an answer to? Hmm. Well, I'd like to know who the funders are, and I'd like to know I'd like to know who in the media. I mean, I might never find this out was in bed with those guys and, and pushing, pushing the narratives that they were being fed, that they knew that, that probably came from the Russians. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing. I, don't, I have to be honest with you. I don't know that it's illegal. I don't know if it's, a, if it's illegal to go to Russia and get information. I was I saying think... this all along. I was saying this about the Donald <laughs> Trump Jr. meeting. So I've been consistent. I'm just trying to say if, if the standard is that you talk to Russians, they tell you stuff, and that's treason, 
then that needs to be the applicable standard here as well. And from my point of view, true information is true information, and what's fair is fair in politics. So I, I was saying this all along. I agree, but it only seems to be treason if Republicans well, might right, have been Democrats. So when Tim Kaine says that, the, that the, you know, he said that, that Donald Trump Jr. should be investigated for treason at the time, meanwhile, he didn't even take the information. He didn't even pay for the information. So uh, it, you, we have to have a standard, a standard that applies to all people. We can't play this game because then you know, it's going to start to look like maybe Democrats aren't that serious about Russian interference. I will just put this yeah. out there, and then I'll let you go, David. The, the big question that I want an answer to is, how much and in what ways did the dossier possibly influence any uh, oh, yeah. investigation of Trump, Trump associates, any of that stuff? We already know one one warrant. You know, they used used some of that information to bolster their case for a one warrant on uh, Carter Page or whatever. So, I mean, how many people are unmasked having to do with this sort of information? So, yeah, that's a huge question. I forgot about that. You like that one, right? That's what I'm here for, David. Yeah, because that that's actual that's actual corruption, right? I mean, that would be actual corruption. Oh not, yeah, yeah, not just shady, but but abuse of power in a way that would be a, a giant story if people actually cared about it in the media. He's back with you now because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Fight on what we want to do. We want tax cuts for the middle class. We want tax cuts for businesses to produce jobs. There's great unity. Tax cuts, tax cuts. Oh, that's what the GOP is united on. They want to get this big tax cut through. And there's a a lot of conversation in the Beltway-obsessed media about what this is going to look like. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. I just love throwing in a little Gordon Gecko Wall Street, the movie reference whenever I can. Okay, back to taxes. I should note that there's a fair amount of back and forth already on what some of these details would be for tax cuts. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion already about how there would be fewer brackets, fewer brackets that would pay a specific rate, but who would fall into those brackets, for example? Also, would they change 401k limits? Would they make it so you're not able to put as much into a 401k at a pre-tax or in a tax shelter tax advantaged way? Uh, so I have, I have some big thoughts, <laughs> big thoughts, big things. No, I, I have some broad spectrum thoughts on tax cuts and and what this will really look like i don't think that this is going to happen before christmas time it may happen in december i don't think it's going to happen before thanksgiving for sure so this is going to be an ongoing and continuous conversation but i i would just raise first that middle class we always are told that the middle class is who should get the tax cuts and trump as a populist is appealing to the middle class. And what you find when you look at the numbers is that that's a more malleable term than I think a lot of folks would realize at first first glance. Uh, The majority of Americans, according to a Gallup poll, 62% say that they are middle class. And when you look at what the income levels are, uh, you get a sense as to what, in fact, numerically speaking, qualifies as middle class. 
$59,000 a year is, is uh, right in the middle, according to the Census Bureau. Um, and if you are going to be technical about who would fit into the middle class in terms of income levels, uh, it's, it goes all the way from $42,000 a year in income. So the middle class, according to Pew Research, I mean, they're crunching all the numbers, $42,000 a year in income to $125,000 a year in income. And $125K, depending on where you are, is a really good, really good amount of money, right? It's a salary you live very comfortably on, which is another component of this whole discussion that often gets left out. One of the problems with policymaking from D.C. is that it is inherently one-size-fits-all for the rest of the country, right? And when you're talking about what's a fair tax bracket for different people to be paying, you look at what is median income. So it falls in the middle, not the average, but the median income in six different American cities that the, that the Washington Post here highlights. And you get a real sense that the difference in the middle class and the difference in quality of, of life and well, of living standard, I should say, living standards as a function of income vary widely from city to city, from area to area of this country, and what is a middle-class income in New York City or Los Angeles is not a middle-class income in Kansas or in uh, Mississippi and, and vice versa. The cities that... So on our discussion of the middle class, I just think we should really put into perspective this is a term that's used all the time. It's thrown around, but it is often used in an imprecise fashion. So Newton, Massachusetts, uh, the median income is $122,000 a year. In Washington, D.C., 70000 In Denver, it's 53000 In Dallas, it's 43000 In Birmingham, Alabama, it's 31000 And in Flint, Michigan, it's $24,900. So different regions of the country have very different median incomes, and the rule of thumb for the most expensive cities in the country is that you need to make twice as much. I'm talking now about San Francisco, New York City, to a lesser extent, L.A., but San Francisco and New York, it's true. And Palo Alto area, I believe for real estate, is now the uh, tightest real estate market and therefore the highest prices of anywhere in the country. Uh, but the, uh, the, the rule of thumb is that you need double the income to have the living standard of other cities or other areas of the country in San Francisco and New York. So if you make 100K in New York City, you are living like somebody who makes 50K in St. Louis or in a, uh, a rural area of, I mean, you know, the country's a very big place, right? We can pick these at random. Um, but if you are in a mid-sized Midwestern city, your money goes twice as far as a major large coastal city. Now this ties into the tax debate in ways that all of us should care about because of, well, one, there's just the the overall terminology and how it's used can be very deceptive. And when they talk about, for example, with in, under the Obama administration, they would refer to millionaires and billionaires. You know, Bernie Sanders, the millionaires and billionaires. They're, they're running around here, they're lighting money on fire, they're lighting their cigarettes with $100 bills. Uh, and then they would say, well, yeah, if you have a combined household income of $250,000, you're you can afford to pay more. Okay, well, you're doing well with a combined household income of $250,000, but 
in a place like New York City or San Francisco or, I mean, I know there are ritzy areas of, of Dallas and uh, Miami and, you know, there are plenty of places where 250 k and especially if you're talking about a dual-income household or more, doesn't make you rich. It just means that you're earning, you're earning your money, you're earning a living. I prefer the earning class to the middle class because of the way that politicians play games with all this language. And, and, and let me also say, and I, I should have stated this from the, from the outset, I, I think that a tax cut is a great idea. I think we're going to see that the debt's going to get too big if we do this, and we're gonna, we might see some problems because of that. But that's going to be another conversation that has to happen. We're not having it right now about the debt. Tax cuts would be good for the economy. You should keep more of your money. You, you who are listening to the show, I would love to keep more of my money. That's all great. But what the tax cut looks like does matter. And this is where you get into the SALT, the state and local tax deduction that helps mostly people like me who live in New York City. And, you know, anybody who lives in a, in a high-tax blue state is able to write off some of their state and local taxes against their federal income taxes. If that goes, you'll see it's a way of, of Trump, the, the, the blue state media, which is most of the media, right? The California and New York and Acela, the so-called Acela corridor for the Acela high-speed train, which goes from Boston to New York City to Washington, D.C. All the folks who live along that line are going to be pretty annoyed because as much as they talk about how they want higher tax rates, they generally, in very few cases, is this not true, they generally don't want to pay higher taxes themselves. Overwhelmingly, what you find is that the progressives, the Nancy Pelosi's, the Schumer's, they want to make sure that they're taking more money from everybody else to do with whatever they please. But they don't themselves particularly want to pay very high taxes. A great example of this was John Kerry, who, uh, like, I, I know I don't like to get into people's personal lives unfairly or unnecessarily, but. He did manage to marry very wealthy twice, so there seems to be a pattern. Uh, But John Kerry, when he was running for president, paid something like 10% or 12% on $7 million of unearned income on money that was his wife's from a previous marriage, and he's lecturing everybody about taxes. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're going to pay 12 or 15% because of capital gains and other tax shelters that, or not tax shelters, but other tax code, some people might call it a shelter, Uh, tax code advantages for capital that are in place, sure, you're going to want to lecture people about their money and feel good about yourself. And to me, it is all very hypocritical. But that's a classic Democrat trope, and they're going to do it with all this this taxation talk right now or this tax cut talk, which Trump is pushing for. And and I do think this, this has to... There is zero excuse for this not to happen, right? If this doesn't happen, I don't know how anybody can even show up to work as a Republican and feel like what they're doing has any particular merit. I mean, if this doesn't work, you want to just say, you know what, maybe the Republicans should just stay home and we'll wait until the midterms. I mean, because there's just there's no point. They're just going through the motions. They're just making a play at being legislators without actually going through the process and the getting the result of legislation. Uh, but I, look, uh, tax cuts would be great, and I'm, I'm very much enthused. I think that's a word. I'm very enthusiastic about the Trump administration 
uh, focusing in on this. It's not going to be the end of things. I, I saw those border wall prototypes, and that's good. But for our southern border, I would like to see a wall getting built, not just prototypes getting photo ops or people taking photos of them in the media. So there's a lot more on the agenda that we are going to have to focus on. But uh, this tax cut thing is going to is going to be real. It's going to be serious. And I think the corporate tax cut will really get it. We'll really see if all these people who are out there, all these economists who are on the right, who are saying that this will result in obvious and undeniable uh, growth in the economy and uh, there'll be a lot of good that people feel from this that could have profound implications for the midterms and for the rest of the agenda too right success breeds success if trump and the republican congress republican controlled congress gets through a major tax cut it'll pave the way for other things assuming it is successful and people believe that and there'll be a fight over it. i mean democrats are going to say that Trump is stealing food out of the mouths of, of babies and old people no matter what, right? I mean, there's, there's no way around that. But here we have a very good chance for something worthwhile on the legislative front, which would be the first time really all year, I think you could say, that that has been the case. So keep your eyes open for that, and team will be right back with much more. Remember the travel ban, everybody? Got a lot of people all fired up when it first went into effect back in, I guess it was March. The Trump administration was, by its uh, own proclamations and, and statements on this, trying to protect the homeland from the possibility of terror in, terrorist infiltration. And to do so, they stopped the entry for a set period of time of people from a number of countries. And then all heck broke loose. There were protests at the airports. There were lots of weepy-eyed stories in the New York Times, the Washington Post, about Syrian valedictorians who were on their way to see their grandmother as she was getting a heart transplant and, you know, all that stuff, right? That's what we, that's what we expected to happen, and sure enough, it did uh, but then you had these judges who decided that, most notably, this Derek Watson, who's a friend, not just an appointee, but a friend of President Obama's, as I understand it, who figured that they could be part of the hashtag resistance against Trump by, oh, that's right, you guessed it, just making up the law as they go along by just deciding that there's no such thing specifically as wording in a law that can be understood and interpreted as is it's whatever you want it to say they call this a living constitution approach i call it judicial activism uh, but nonetheless the hashtag the never trump judiciary i guess you could give that a hashtag if you want was in full effect on the travel ban well we've got some news on this that just came in the last day or so here's the story courtesy of the washington i mean of the new york times the Supreme Court dismissed on Tuesday the last remaining appeal in a pair of cases challenging President Trump's executive order issued in March that sought to limit travel to the United States. The March order was replaced in September with broader restrictions, and they have already been blocked by federal district courts in Hawaii and Maryland. Tuesday's dismissal mostly amounted to judicial housekeeping, etc., etc., but then, so you go, oh, okay, so this was nothing. 
Or was it nothing? The article continues a little lower down. But the Supreme Court did a little more than simply remove the case from its docket. It also vacated the decision under appeal from the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit in San Francisco, meaning it cannot be used as a precedent. Justice Sonia Sotomayor dissented, saying that she would have simply dismissed the case and allowed the appeals court decision to remain on the books. Here's what the New York Times doesn't want its readers to really pick up on here, although they can't entirely skip over it. This is a uh, this is an indicator. They're not the the Supreme Court is not uh, speaking on the merits of the case, but they're also not allowing the Ninth Circuit uh, decision on this to stand so that it can't be built upon in the future. That is a sending something of a sending something of a message, you could say, via the judiciary. And I have to say, it is uh, an amazing, an amazing circumstance to watch judges so clearly side with their own uh, political decisions instead of what the plain wording of the law may be. And I, I just think uh, that's right. I, I think that this should get a little bit more a little bit more uh, attention because the the whole ban issue with Trump and the, the travel ban was such a lightning rod in the beginning of the administration. There were so many people who were saying that, you know, this was the, the long, dark night of tyranny made real and this was so terrible and, you know, how, how could anybody allow this to stand? I think that he will win, especially with this new expanded order, right, which more which is part of this whole judicial process of what's going on now you got the new travel ban order which has more countries including non-muslim majority countries like venezuela and north korea uh, i think the president is on very strong legal ground and so what will what will it say if in fact this makes its way all the way up through the appeals court to the supreme court and the supreme court holds that president trump was right all along because Let's just make sure we're all clear here. The media was not saying early on in this. They were not claiming that this was a, a matter of, of discretion, that this was a close call, that good people, uh, people of good faith on both sides could disagree. Oh, no, 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 no. They were stating vociferously and repeatedly that this was a, a horrific abuse of power by the president, that he was undermining the very fabric of our democracy. You know, once they get into the grandiose terminology with these left-wing journalists, then you know, then you know that they're, they're grasping at straws here. But this is one of their favorite fallback tactics. Of, oh, what about, the, what about the democracy, sir? And then a lot of people will write, well, you mean the republic, but... What, what about this nation? What about the, the Constitution? It's like, do these journalists, have they even read the Constitution in recent memory? Or do they have respect for it as something other than a talking point to express their indignation at something that President Trump has done? Uh, Trump, I, f I believe, and we can put this on our record of Buck's predictions, Trump will be found to have been correct uh, by and large and on the merits when it comes to his authority and his executive order on the travel ban. And I just don't want to let all this stuff slip because the reason that I know, for example, not to trust the media when they report on Trump's phone call to a gold star widow 
is the same reason that I know not to trust the media when they say that there was a treasonous meeting between Jared Kushner and Donald Trump Jr. and Paul Manafort in Trump Tower, which is the same reason I can just go through a whole list of these things, which is that they lie, which is that they lie. And they don't correct it later on. It's not like they get it wrong and then they make sure everybody knows that they were wrong in the first place. Yeah, maybe they'll print a retraction or, a, or an update or something in the back of their paper somewhere. But it's just nonsense. And you will see, this is a, a little indicator of things to come with this decision by the Supreme Court to entirely vacate the decision, to erase effectively the Ninth Circuit decision on on the earlier travel ban uh, but it's because this travel ban in the end trump will be right and his media critics are going to be pretending like they weren't claiming that fascism was upon us because of his travel ban or he's holding the line for america buck sexton is back so i think it's fine the way it is we have Actually, great unity in the Republican Party. Yesterday, I was, oh, that's okay. Look, you know, they have to do their thing. Uh, We have great unity. If you look at what happened yesterday at the meeting, we had, I guess, virtually every senator, uh, including John McCain. We had a great conversation yesterday, John McCain and myself, about the military. I think we had a a tremendous, I called it a love fest. It was almost a love fest. Maybe it was a love fest. But we standing ovations. There is great unity. I mean, if you look at the Democrats with Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, that's a mess. There's great unity. There's great unity within the Republican Party. I love it when Trump is out there just telling the media the opposite of what they want him to say. It's always good fun. And on this issue, he's not going to let the corkers and the flakes and, yes, the McCains of the party determine that there is a rift. You know... These Republicans who are having all these problems with Trump right now, especially the ones who are doing this on the way out, they're clever enough to know that they're doing the Democrat Party's bidding with all this. They have to be aware of that. They're not saying anything that hasn't been said before in terms of Trump's uh, coarseness and uh, lack of refinement as a politician. But as they well know, Trump's base just doesn't care. I don't care that his tweets annoy the press so much. In fact, I often find it really amusing, and I enjoy the fact that after really my entire adult life having to stomach a media that is wildly partisan and full of lies and just dishonorable, a dishonorable media complex in this country, which I think has been the standard. It's not abnormal. It is, in fact, normal in our mainstream media environment to be a person who lies about where he or she is coming from on an issue, who is clearly pursuing an agenda, and who will play dirty in order to take down ideological opponents, uh, they'll stop at nothing, right? So this stuff about civility from Corker and Flake and others, I just don't really want to hear it from them. And I did want to bring to your attention, in case uh, this had not gotten... Uh, this is because I think this has not gotten enough play at all. And it's a piece that just came out in the Weekly Standard uh, from the October edition of the Weekly Standard. And it's about deregulation. 
You know, people are saying, oh, Trump hasn't done anything and, oh, he's he's so terrible. I know you're not saying that, but that's a lot of the that's a lot of the rap that's out there right now. Let's talk a bit about what he has done and how much it does, in fact, matter. Uh, Trump is the king of deregulation right now. According to this Weekly Standard piece, the government added an average, an average of 13,000 new restrictions over the last, each year, over the last 20 years. 13,000 a year for 20 years. That's a lot, right? That is a whole bunch of regulations piled on top of this. 260,000, uh, roughly speaking, by my count. Under Trump, so far, the number of new regulations, according to this piece in the Weekly Standard by Peter Boyer, is zero my friends, absolute zero on this one. And the piece goes to make some very important points here. Quote, constraining the administrative state is a founding principle of modern conservatism, which holds that economic freedom is necessary to political reform uh, or to political freedom. Rather, Trump's stated objective is prosperity, which is not unrelated. And there is much evidence besides the intuitive of a negative correlation between restrictive regulation and economic growth. A 2013 study published in the Journal of Economic Growth found that accumulated regulations between 1949 and 2005 slowed the American economy by an average, an annual average of 2%. One of McLaughlin's studies estimates that the cumulative effect of government regulation caused the economy to be 4 trillion dollars smaller in 2012 than it might have been that's four trillion with a t everybody that amount equaled about a quarter of the u.s economy in 2012 and if it were a nation's gdp it would be the fourth largest in the world end quote the regulatory state is not just a talking point the regulatory state is the most destructive and most omnipresent manifestation of statism, the defining creed of the American left, which is that the state should be involved in all issues because the state can solve all problems and the state can solve any problem at the expense of your freedom if it is for the collective good. So there's an endless array of things the state can and should do. It has no limitations because everything is the state's purview. That is statism. And the regulatory state which is really just an additional legislative branch without any accountability, right? The fourth branch of government, the permanent bureaucracy. Yes, the swamp, right? The, the beltway monstrosity, the many, many-headed hydra, the many-tentacled octopus of federal regulation from inside D.C. That has a tremendous negative impact on the economy has an enormously uh, deleterious effect on economic freedom and Trump gets a giant thumbs up he gets two thumbs up so far on this issue of the regulatory state now I understand that if you get a different president all of a sudden they can ramp up they can go you know with 50,000 regulations in the first year although that might scare some people that might be a little much but they can undo what Trump has done with these regulations so far. But let's just understand that the 
feeling of economic prosperity that's out there right now and the positive uh, the positive sentiment from all kinds of corporations and different sectors of the economy and, and, our, and our industrial output, all this stuff that's looking so good right now, unemployment numbers so low, stock markets so high, to say that this is completely unrelated to Trump and his decisions to stop strangling private enterprise is just disingenuous, just unfair. Right? Trump is making a lot of progress in this regard, and he's making progress by actually not doing anything. And this is a key case, and I, or a key point, and it's a case that I would like GOP conservatives across the country to be making much more, which is that doing nothing needs to stop being considered a dirty phrase in politics. Doing nothing can be great. The government refraining from interfering is often the best course of action. Our entire constitutional order is based upon laying out powers to government so that government is very clear, so that we are very clear that there's a lot the government does not have a right to do. And there are many areas the government cannot transgress. So we should start to make that case. And I think regulations is a place where it will be very, uh, very clear what the benefits are. Uh, but back to Trump's statements, uh, he, he does love to just just go after. He loves to goad journalists. And it, I know maybe one day it'll be too much or you know, maybe one day I'll be tired of winning. But I, I do enjoy it and I do find it to be highly amusing. And here's yet another instance of Trump just just being Trump and journalists getting very upset about it. Well, I think the press makes me more uncivil than I am. You know, people don't understand. I went to an Ivy League college. Uh, I was a nice student. I did very well. Uh, I'm a very intelligent person. I, you know, I, the fact is, I think, I really believe, I think the press uh, creates a different image of Donald Trump than the real, the real person. <laughs> They're making me out to be a bad guy, but I'm like a... I'm like a great guy. Come on. You know, he went to Ivy League schools. I will say that the the whole I went to a fancy school phenomenon. I've been talking to, to friends of mine about this for quite some time. It'll be a great thing for this country when we really reform our notion of college and a college education. And also the meritocracy of higher education is a myth. It's a lie. There are all of these different reasons that one can get into these schools that have nothing to do with academic ability. Schools have also become these social experiments and the centers for social justice uh, indoctrination at the expense of education. I mean, this is how you have colleges now that are putting trigger warnings on Shakespeare and saying to kill a mockingbird might be offensive for people to read. That might have even been a high school. I forget now. Uh, but, but Trump just laying it out there i really do enjoy it i i enjoy still i get a lot of i derive a lot of pleasure from trump uh giving all these journalists a not even giving them a hard time although he does that too by calling them out and calling them fake news just refusing to play by their rules it is among my favorite things about this presidency it is among the best things uh, i did not manage to get much more into the jeff flake phenomenon uh and i meant to so let me just say that we're all going to be okay in the Republican Party about Flake. And we know this based on who is really upset about Flake not running for re-election. 
was incredibly well-liked, well-respected, incredibly conservative, somebody with one of the most conservative mm -hmm. voting records, but who had earned the respect of his Democratic colleagues, was a member of the Gang of Eight, took political risks on immigration. And I think that the senators in both parties that I talked to yesterday came away with a real sense of loss what? around this. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Jeff Flake, who is a senator from Arizona that very few people in the country who don't make a living writing about politics outside this state of Arizona knew about or cared about. Jeff Flake is now being described as, as like the second coming of George Washington, uh, a, a combination of Churchill and Thomas Jefferson all wrapped into one. How could they get rid of Jeff Flake? First of all, it's Flake's decision, and, and I should know. We all know it's Flake's decision not to run again. But you have to love all the sanctimony here. You've got reporters. Uh, I shared some of it with you yesterday who are all, oh, this speech by Flake attacking Trump will be remembered for generations. No, no, it, it really won't be remembered for generations. In fact, I can't even really remember it today. And you have a problem if you're Jeff Flake and anyone pays attention to this. I told what I said to you yesterday about all of this still stands. But I, I just dug into his recent voting record a little more. And Jeff Flake was a guy who was willing to criticize Trump publicly, but was also a kind of go along to get along guy with Mitch McConnell in the Senate. And the only place where he took a vote that is memorable was on the Gang of Eight bill where he was part of the amnesty crowd. Despite all that, though, I mean, over at Morning Joe, they are just, oh, they, they are clutching pearls. They are appalled that such a, a, a fantastic and unassailable conservative like Jeff Flake of Arizona will no longer be running. Oh, I do declare I'm just getting the vapors because Jeff Sessions will not be running. They really need to take a chill pill. This is what they said over at MSNBC. Rebuke. Far beyond a rebuke, and this is uh, this shows the insanity yeah. that has overtaken the Republican Party. I, I always the White joke House. when people would come up and say, oh, you're a liberal. I say, well, at a 95% lifetime conservative rating, and I've really changed any positions. Jeff Flake, who is supposed to be this big liberal, right. that some goons over at uh, Fox News, I won't mention his name, are attacking. Jeff Flake has a 96% <laughs> lifetime conservative rating. He is the conservative's conservative. He is the champion and has been his entire life of small government, of free trade. So yeah, there you have it. Oh, what is happening to the Republican Party? Joe and Mika were, when, when Trump was cool with them, and when they were cool, were cool with Trump, Joe and Mika were all about it. When the ratings were good, when the ratings were strong, for Trump stories over on MSNBC, Joe was was close to the campaign. He was, you could argue, an important piece in the media, at least given what the other options are over at MSNBC, in getting Trump elected. And here he is. Oh, my gosh. What's going on with the Republican Party now? What can, what can you even say about this anymore? I can't remember the last time that I saw a clip of the Morning Joe show and Joe Scarborough was truly outraged about anything that a Democrat or that the left said or did. 
I'm sure it's happened. Well, I mean, I would guess it has happened. But I watch a lot of cable news, and I also am very familiar with the different editorial lines of the major shows on these channels. And it seems to me quite clear that MSNBC now has conservatives on air only who fall into the never Trump category. And if they have somebody on who is pro Trump, they're 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 just there to be humiliated and abused on TV for the most part. And, you know, Morning Joe, I've just never heard anything insightful said on that show. Maybe that's my biggest objection. But I, I have to laugh. You're there with Jeff Flake. Oh, it's just the speech he gave. It's so amazing. It's so wonderful. When Flake was in the house, none of these people talking about this on TV, I would wager. None of them really remember this. But when Flake was in the house, he was kind of a libertarian-ish and was willing to uh, attach his name to any number of fights because he was trying to get known. But once Jeff Flake made it into the Senate, he became a uh, much more agreeable figure with the establishment and the Trumpian description of the establishment is the swamp. But Flake, Corker, I just do not ever remember seeing these U.S. senators get as upset about anything that was done during the Obama years as they are now that President Trump is in power. And you just have to wonder if it's really about public service and not self-service, if it's really about doing what's best for the country. Those who are taking this approach in the Republican Party of, oh, I just can't handle this anymore, they can't handle a fight within their own party? If it's so worthwhile to them to put themselves in in tough situations, you know, take tough votes for the American people, there's nothing, nothing here for them, nothing to be done about this... uh, Trump administration that that could use maybe a little guidance, maybe a little conservatism uh, here and there. No, no, no. Cut and run. The, these are the, the cut and run heroes of the Republican Party, Corker and Flake. And to say, as as Scarborough did there, well, Flake is conservative on you know, he has a 90 percent or 95 percent conservative rating. First of all, he's in Arizona, very red state. And when it comes to the biggest issue of the last eight years before Trump, uh, the issue of amnesty under the Obama administration, Flake was pushing for the amnesty bill. You know, he was part of the Gang of Eight bill. So when it was an important vote, I mean, this kind of reminds me of how people say, oh, well, there's some, you know, there's some executive orders that Republicans have passed, and it's the same number as what Democrats. It's not about the number. It's about what the order is. It's not about the overall percentage. It's about the legislative impasses, the important battles, and which side was a given congressman or senator on. Attention all guys with hair loss. Paramax is the clinically proven and FDA cleared way to reverse your hair loss and start growing new hair. Just text FLOW to 246810 to awaken hair follicles and regrow hair with increased density and fullness. Don't go another day looking older than you are due to hair loss. Reverse the loss and start regrowing your hair today. Just text FLOW to 246810 to get an exclusive link to see how Hairmax can help you. Hairmax uses the science of laser light to safely and effectively regrow your 
your hair, giving you the fastest treatment for hair loss available. Use for as little as 90 seconds three times a week at home and experience new hair growth with increased density and fullness you'll love to have. Just text FLOW to 246810. Don't wait until your hair follicles are dead and it's too late. Text FLOW to 246810 right now to reverse your hair loss and start regrowing hair today. Join over 1 million worldwide users of clinically proven hair max. Text FLOW to 246810 now. Text FLOW to 246810.
He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. And this week, we got all the Russia stuff, Jeff Flake, the schism in the GOP, Corker saying not nice things about the commander in chief. And yes, taxes and the agenda. Who can help us make some sense of all the things that are happening right now in the Beltway and, and that affect everyone across the country? Uh, we've got Michael Goodwin on the line. He's a New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor, and he's got a great piece on the New York Post. The Trump dossier was Clinton's dirtiest political trick. Mr. Goodwin, great to have you back. Thank you very much, Buck. All right. Why was it the people are going to say, oh, it wasn't Clinton, Michael. She didn't know they paid for it before. I mean, there are all these excuses out there. Tell us why this should worry Hillary and the and the Clinton acolytes out there. Well, look, I, I Buck, I think that the significance of this is hard to overstate. Because what you have is the Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee funding research that was done in Russia through some nefarious middlemen. Uh, I mean, uh, the whole idea that Trump colluded with Russia, it turns out that Clinton was paying to get information from Russians. Now, we don't know who these people are exactly. Uh, Some of the people who are quoted in the dossier uh, have denied that they said these things, or have sued. Some have actually sued uh, the company uh, and the agent, this guy Steele, who apparently was briefing the press. So there's no question that this thing was spread around Washington by the Clintons. And I think that if Congress really digs into this, and this is not speculation, but but it's not a fact yet, and it is that the Clinton campaign spread this around, gave it to the FBI, gave it to the White House, and the FBI and the White House used it, the FBI to investigate Trump, and the White House perhaps to uh, justify uh, any kind of snooping on members of the Trump campaign and transition team and to unmask them. So I think this dossier is going to turn out to be much more important in a lot of other actions than we heretofore recognized, because once you trace it back to Clinton and the DNC, then the patterns begin to make more sense. So that's why I think this is really the dirtiest of the dirty tricks. I also find it hard to believe, and I'm trying to be very, we've been talking about this a lot on the show today, Michael, and I'm trying to be uh, very specific about you know, what what are is either recitation or a timeline of facts versus what is a theory or just an idea that I have. Sure. This goes in the ideal realm, but it's also a credit. You know what I'm willing to believe. I find it very hard to believe that the DNC was involved with this guy running around Russia who's picking up inc- salacious allegations that they would later share with all these different media outlets and it got to the FBI and that the FBI would present it to the president after he had won. I mean, that, that I, I find it very hard to believe that as this was happening early on, they had no knowledge of what was going on. I, what I'm saying here is that no senior Clinton or maybe even Hillary herself officials were told at some point, wow, we got this guy who's picking up stuff from Russians right now about Trump that's just going to blow your socks off. I find that hard to believe. Well, and, and if you line up some of her comments during the campaign, I mean, during one of the debates, she talked about Trump and Russians. Uh, she said it in numerous times in interviews 
about collusion. I mean, the idea of collusion came from her. She's the one, but the, the irony, of course, or hypocrisy, I guess is more accurate, is that she's the one who was paying someone to work with Russians. Don't forget, the sources are Russians um, to, to, to find dirt on Donald Trump. So who was really colluding with Russians? I mean, so far we found no evidence of Trump, but it seems to me we have now found some compelling evidence that the Clinton campaign and the DNC <clears throat> were working indirectly through Fusion GPS with Russians. I mean, that to me, as I say in the column, <clears throat> flips the script on collusion. We're speaking to Michael Goodwin, who's a columnist over at the New York Post. Go to NewYorkPost.com for his latest. The Trump dossier was Clinton's dirtiest political trick. But, Michael, I also want to switch gears for, uh, for a bit here. We've, been, we've also been discussing the whole Jeff Flake fallout and Corker's comments and all this animosity. What, what do you make of this? I, I feel like from Trump's perspective, he's just separating the, the wheat from the chaff and he's just doing his thing. Uh, true. The problem for him is that he's going to need those votes. And um, I, I think you're right that, look, I mean, guys like Corker, I don't know why they went into government. I mean, they don't apparently actually want to do anything. Uh, they always find some objection. And Flake was so unpopular in his own state, as was Corker. I mean, th- these are not heroes. These were quitters. These are people who gave up before the shot was fired. Uh, but having said that, with a very small margin in the Senate, 52 Republican votes. Uh, Trump needs every vote he can get. And so I think that he's got to, in some way, walk a fine line here. You want to look forward. You want to keep the revolution going. But at the same time, you need to get things done. And if you don't get things done, then the revolution will be postponed. Do you think that this is uh, a harbinger of things to come with all the commentary from Steve Bannon about how this is just the beginning there. You know, this, the, the swamp draining is just getting going. It feels like there's something of a intra GOP political civil war on the horizon. There certainly does. And I, I have to say, I question Bannon's wisdom in this because uh, I, I think this turmoil, this constant churning, which Trump does enough on his own, uh, I, I think that at some point this could exhaust uh, the public, that it, it never seems to settle down. It never gets to work. It's always the next election. It's always intra, intra-party fighting. Uh, as others have noted, Corker and uh, Flake said harsher things about Trump than they ever did about Obama or Clinton. Uh, so I, I think that this could wear people out if it doesn't lead to results. And, and I think the time period is pretty obvious. If if Republicans go into the 2018 midterms having neither repealed Obamacare nor passed tax reform, then I and and then I think they're going to be looking at an empty plate, and voters are going to say, "What was it all about? What what is all that fighting about?" If at the end of the day you're not going to take care of us, the the people who put you there in the first place. So I think they've always got to keep their eye on that. And I'm not, I think Bannon is playing a long game. But I think the president has to play a short game as well as a long game. One more for you before I let you get back to uh, writing and your Fox News appearances and everything else you got going on, Michael. And that is, I've seen the uh, and heard the the discussion going on about how 
Trump won't be blamed for Congresses, for the Republicans in Congress uh, not being able to get the job done, for congressional inaction. And so at the midterms, and even Trump, I think, has been saying this, you know, it's going to be Congress that bears the brunt of the voters' uh, agitation with the lack of progress and momentum. However, even if that's true, even if Trump doesn't get blamed in the midterms and Congress are the ones that feel the wrath of the Republican voter, what does Trump do if he loses control of either the House or the Senate? It feels like then you're just you're just in four years of, or two years of gridlock. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I think it's a it's a hopeful idea that he won't be blamed. But you know, I mean, just look at Barack Obama's experience in, in the times when Obama was not on the ballot, the Democratic Party got killed. Uh, don't forget you have a very different turnout when it's in a non-presidential year. Different people vote for different reasons. Not so many of them. The turnout is always less in the midterms than it is in the, in the presidential cycles. So I, I think it is, would be quite risky for the president to be overconfident that uh, failure to get anything done will not fall on his shoulders. I, uh, but as you say, even if it doesn't, even if it, they take it out on Congress, where does that leave him? If he's got a Democratic House or a Democratic Senate, uh, it's not going to be easy. And, and look, it's pretty clear that the first thing they would try to do is impeach him. Check out Michael Goodwin's latest column, NewYorkPost.com, everybody, and follow him on Twitter at MGoodwin underscore NYPost. Michael, always appreciate you making the time. Have a great week. Thank you, Buck. All right, team, we're going to be uh, rolling into a break here in just a moment. Uh, when I come back, I, I think we're going to be talking to you. I, don't know, I kind of want to talk to you about Einstein, although I don't know if we're getting that right away. There's something, an interesting Einstein story with some life wisdom attached to it all. Oh, and also, later on in the show, I will be able to talk to you about, get ready for it, a new kind of bacon that may be even better than bacon right now. How do you improve upon perfection? I don't know, my friends. I didn't know that this was possible. I didn't know this was feasible. But science, hashtag science, may have made it a thing now. You might be able to eat better bacon. Although they say it's leaner, so I don't know if that's better. And this is a science, it's really a science experiment that we're relying on here to get all this done. And it'll c- combat a trend here in New York City of uh, making there less, making there be less meat for school children in the New York City school system to eat. They're not allowed to eat meat on a day of the week. I'll get into that, too, as well as uh, some other odds and ends here and there. So 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Do you have any thoughts, especially on that last point, about what happens if Congress gets the blame but Democrats get the win? What does Trump do then after the midterms? I know it's a bit early, but we like prognostications. We like to think strategically and long term. Welcome back, team. Great to uh, have you here with me in the Freedom Hut, 844-900-2825, if you would uh, like to have a chat, third hour of the show, why not, and now would be a good time. Uh, But I wanted to tell you about Einstein's theory of happiness, something that you don't hear as much about. And this is a, this is in the news. Let me tell you why it's in the news, then I'll tell you what the theory is. Usually you think of the theory of relativity and... Einstein, one of the uh, great geniuses of the 20th century, of any century. And here's what happened. Einstein was in Tokyo uh, back in 1922. He was at the Imperial Hotel. He was there on a lecture tour. 
and a uh, busboy came up to him to give him the telegram, the information, uh, that he had, in fact, won the Nobel Prize. So the busboy, or the bellboy, rather, not the busboy, the bellboy delivered this message to the uh, renowned physicist and Einstein, who was known as a, a jovial fellow, uh, was looking through his pockets to find some kind of a tip, some kind of uh, change to give for this very welcome news that he was a Nobel Soon to be a Nobel laureate. He won the Nobel Prize. Or I guess he was a Nobel laureate. And he didn't have any change on him. Einstein was coming up empty. So instead of change, and this this reminds me of uh, Bill Murray with the Dalai Lama, you know, big hitter of the Lama, when he, at the end of a round, Bill Murray says to the Dalai Lama, you know, hey, how about something for the, for, for the effort? And the Dalai Lama says... Uh, you know, when you die, you will have full consciousness. And then Bill Murray says, well, you got that going for me, which is nice. Uh, it's a similar-ish story in that Einstein didn't have the change in his pocket. And so he said, look, I will, I will write a theory of how to have a happy life on a napkin for you. And hopefully this will be worth more. Well, before I tell you what the theory is, this Theory of happiness that Einstein wrote on a napkin in Tokyo in 1922 was just sold this week at an auction in Jerusalem for $1.56 million. That is a pricey napkin. That is a napkin that would have been uh, worth keeping in the family for a while. And in fact, it was kept in the family. Uh, The grandson of the Japanese bellboy's brother collected this uh, princely sum of $1.56 million for Einstein's theory of happiness written on a napkin. Uh, but now you may be thinking, okay, well, this is one of the smartest guys of all time. Right? He's, his name is literally synonymous with genius. What was his theory of happiness? Something that we should probably all spend a bit more time thinking about than we do. Right? What is, how, do you, how do you become happy? What does it mean to be happy? We have this society that is full of distraction and consumption, commercialism. That's what we are fed. That's what we are surrounded by. That's what we are, uh, in many ways, I think, indoctrinated and even pressured into embracing as, as the purpose for our existence. But there's clearly more than that. And without getting into the religious uh, reasons, for one's existence without talking about a relationship with God. As I always say, that's, that's, if you, that's a, a, different, a different discussion. And you get that on, on Sunday from other folks. That's not what I do here. But just from a philosophical standpoint, what is the key to a happy life? And Einstein wrote on a napkin, A calm and modest life brings more happiness than the pursuit of success combined with constant restlessness. He wrote this on German, wrote this in German on, on this napkin in, in Tokyo. And then on a second napkin, Einstein wrote, where there's a will, there's a way. Two profound, profound bits of uh, information and wisdom from one of the smartest men uh, to have lived. Um, two profound little nuggets of wisdom 
The first one, I think, is, well, it's much less known, right? People, where there's a will, there's a way is a very well-known phrase. But the first one, a common modest life brings more happiness than the pursuit of success combined with constant restlessness. That, I think, is uh, often, that, that is often overlooked these days. And I know we all see this from our own perspective, whether you're uh, somebody who's showing up to a nine to five, whether you own, run your own business, or you're, you're a, a parent, stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad, raising a, a family. Uh, we all have our own version of what success is. We all have our own sense of what makes a person successful, what makes us, what would make us successful. And I, I do think that there, there is more room in society right now than we are led to believe for uh, being calm about what our day-to-day involves. And uh, a modest life, not always feeling like we have to want the next biggest, best thing, that the only uh, solace we can have for the struggles of day-to-day life comes through achievement, either professional or you know, notoriety or monetary. They do these studies of happiness in countries all over the world, and I don't know how scientific you can be about what makes somebody happy. But one of the, uh, one of the constant... And so I think this is applicable, whether you're listening right now, uh, driving a truck or at home after a long day of work or out on the road or whatever it is you're doing. We all have our day-to-day struggles, of course. We also all have our own sense of what would be, what's a successful version of ourselves. And the, uh, the, the answer you get from all of these different surveys that are out there, and they usually they show that people in Finland and Sweden and Denmark are very, very happy. And yeah, they're, they tend to have a good health system. And this is where you get the Bernie Sanders socialist saying, see, they're all so happy up there. But a big part of it as well is that not every Swede, not every Dane, not every, and you can apply this to a whole lot of different countries. They don't all think that they have to be the best at whatever they do of everybody who's ever done it. And anything short of that is some degree of failure. There is a, a hyper-competitiveness that defines the American spirit in a lot of ways, and I, it's obviously the reason we're so successful and wealthy as a country, but on an individual basis, I think we should take a little bit of Einstein's advice here. I think it's worth uh, stopping for a minute to try and have a more calm and more and uh, more modest life than perhaps what we think we need or we are striving for on a on a uh, week-in, week-out basis. Um, And maybe one day somebody will show up and give us a napkin and write something on it, and many decades later it'll be worth a cool million and a half. That would be nice, too. Uh, But a common, modest life brings more happiness than the pursuit of success combined with constant restlessness. Basically, this is Albert Einstein telling you, via me on this radio show, we all need to just chill out a little bit. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. You know, we still don't have any answer about the motive for the Las Vegas shooter. And I said this to you the first week it happened because there were so many uh, gaps in, or forget about gaps for a second, because gaps can be filled. There were things that didn't add up that we did know. It just didn't fit the the profile. There weren't the the warning signs. There weren't those preliminary uh, bits of information that 
which maybe it's hard to see beforehand, but after the fact, you look at them, you put them together, and you say, okay, well, this is, this is what happened here. And there's a need. There, we have a psychological need, I think, in, in this country, as anybody would anywhere around the world, to just try to get a sense of why. Even though it won't bring anybody back, it won't, it won't uh, heal anyone's wounds who were, were grievously wounded in that mass murder spree in Las Vegas. But we don't have much information, even at this point, and I think now the very uncomfortable realization has set in for many people that have been covering this closely and or just watching this closely and assuming that at some point we would get an answer. I don't think we're ever going to have much of an answer here. Uh, I think that those who have been refusing a diagnosis of some kind of suppressed uh, psychopathy, they have a much harder time, they would have a much harder time now with that explanation for this uh, than what was initially being put out there, which was there's a political motivation. If there was a political motivation, we still have yet to find it. And, And there's some new details. This is what got me thinking about it. I wasn't even planning on discussing it on the show tonight, but there's a new detail here, and, and here's what I've, what I've got to share. Uh, the courtesy of ABC News, a laptop computer recovered from the Las Vegas hotel room where Stephen Paddock launched the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history was missing its hard drive, depriving investigators of a potential key source of information on why he killed and maimed so many people. Paddock is believed to have removed the hard drive before fatally shooting himself, and the missing device has not yet been recovered. So, this guy killed 58 people, 58 innocent men and women at at a concert. And they are looking through everything they can in his life, and they still have not a single clear, definitive uh, piece of evidence that leads to motive. And I will say one thing that I, I did not know until I saw this piece here. And, and in retrospect, I remember reading this, but I, I was uh, surprised to see them all put together in this way. That my assumption had been, well, at least if, if you're politically motivated, you want people to know. And a very clear example of this is the the Bernie Sanders supporting, and I don't say that to Besmirched Bernie Sanders. I just can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head, but the guy who shot the Steve Scalise and the other members of Congress and was uh, taken out by Capitol Hill police at that baseball diamond in Alexandria, Virginia. You know, he had a list of conservative members of Congress in his pocket. He went after conservative members of Congress playing baseball. There's really no, there's no reasonable doubt about what he was all about. We, we know that. We can tell. And when it's a political motivation, generally somebody who will take life and throw life, throw their own life away in the process, wants everyone to know. Right? That's the, the purpose of the violence is to accentuate the political statement. This is actually the M.O. This is the basic uh, approach for terrorists. Right? The, the reason for the, the rationalization, the justification, the impetus for their violence is a message that is... Uh, accentuated by that that gets out there because of the violence, right? The violence is a form of theater to get across a message. This is what terrorists do. This is why terrorists 
know if you know they can blow up a market here or there. It's not going to defeat an entire army on 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 its own or something. But they do that enough, and then people are frightened, and people change their political outlook, and people start switching sides, and then you have an insurgency. It's too, or or it's just fear becomes the weapon in and of itself. So you you see this, and and this is a case where you could certainly have had, and I, I was actually over at Fox, I was on TV. And at least one analyst I can remember said that it, we were going to find out. It was just a matter of hours before they released this smoking gun, so to speak, uh, evidence of political motive. And sure enough, that did not happen. Um, I now see that there's a long history of mass murderer shooters who are deranged. When you go into the deranged category, they tend to hide or destroy their uh, digital trail to the extent that they can. Uh, so he, let me. So now you know that Paddock, the Las Vegas shooter, removed his SIM card, not SIM card, removed his uh, hard drive from his laptop. Very clear, very calculated, because there must be something on there he didn't want people to know about. Now we go to some other cases like this, and these are all, although I don't remember who the uh, Northern Illinois shooter was off the top of my head. I'm just seeing this here in this piece. But 2007, for example, the Virginia Tech shooter, Cho Sung uh, Hui, he removed the hard drive of his computer and disposed of his cell phone right before the massacre. Uh, the devices were never recovered. They were never able to find this guy's digital devices, the uh, Virginia Tech shooter. Killed a lot of people on that campus. So he, yeah, crazy person. But isn't it interesting that that in the in the crazy and in, in a in a sick and evil mind, there's this wanting to hide what what you know? It, it, I don't know. I'm I'm trying to make some sense of it, and I know you're dealing with what is inherently what is obviously irrational. But this has happened in other cases, too. 2008, the Northern Illinois shooter, Stephen Kazmierczak, removed the SIM card from his phone and the hard drive from his laptop. Neither of those were ever recovered. So there you have a case where somebody once again decided to hide their... And these are people you figure, they're, you know, they're not planning on surviving this. Although I know they said that Paddock had a, had a getaway plan. Uh, so... Just the, the Northern Illinois shooting was, yeah, that was a school shooting on February 14th, 2018, or 2008, rather. Uh, open fire with a shotgun and three pistols and a crowd of students on campus, killing five students and injuring 17, and then he shot himself. No real, uh, no, no, it is a fifth, it, at the time it was the uh, fifth deadliest university shooting in the history of the United States. Weren't able to figure out much of a motive here either, from what I understand. Mental, yeah, ment- a mental illness motive is all they had. But n- no specifics beyond that. So evil slash crazy hiding his, uh, hiding his internet searches, his whatever he was saying to people, whatever he was looking at. And then in 2012, uh, Sandy Hook shooter Adam Lanza, he also removed his hard drive from his computer, smashed it with a hammer, a screwdriver, uh, I think, was he the one that put the hard drive in an acid bath, too? I think that also happened. So, and he was completely sick and, and deranged, and uh, I saw the reporter this week as well. I mean, he had uh, criminal uh, criminal pornographic material on his computer, so he was a 
a, a deeply disturbed and grotesque individual even before becoming one of the biggest mass shooters in the history of the country. But why do these crazy, sick individuals, why do they hide their digital? It, that's, I don't, why would Pata care? Why hide what's on his laptop? I don't have an answer to this. It's not something I've really thought about before because I've always dealt with on, on a terrorism analysis side. You're, you're looking at, sure, the, the, the tactics and the group and the cluster and the cell, and, and there's all of that investigative, there are all those investigative components. But, you know, when, when ISIS or Al-Qaeda or Hezbollah or Hamas or, you know, go down the list, when they engage in some act of violence, we know what they're all about. Right? We understand what they are trying to uh, accomplish with their messaging, at least. Right? We know what they're... War on the West, and I don't have to get into all that now. But with these, and so they they want to share it. I mean, you know, you have the opposite here. When you have somebody who becomes a martyr, and I thought, by the way, about spending some time today on the show uh, on the in-depth piece from the New York Times on the very young female suicide bombers who managed to escape being suicide bombers very, very narrowly in many cases, uh, that the Boko Haram terrorist group has been deploying in recent years to get to to understand the full depth of the depravity and the evil of these jihadist entities like Boko Haram, which is an ISIS affiliate, which uses uh, eight year olds, 10 year olds, uh, girls and boys. But they'll use eight and 10 year old girls as suicide bombers. And because of the uh, dress code in the majority Islamic parts of Nigeria, um, it's easier for them to be suicide bombers because they tend to have a long uh, similar to the Saudi abaya on, a long black cloak. Anyway, I, I didn't get into that today. One, because it's honestly just too uh, too depressing, and I didn't want to uh, go into an in-depth analysis of something that doesn't have direct applications to something in the news cycle right now for us. But I am very aware of that uh, that piece. But with the political motivations, with the political analysis of terrorism, it's always very clear, and then you're trying to understand it more, and what are they... With this, with these sickos, I don't know. I don't know why they want. Why do they want to hide from us? Is it just to enhance our feeling of unease? Is it is it part of their rage? Was part of what motivated Paddock, not just a, a hatred of of humanity and wanting to go out in this blaze of mass murder? Was it also knowing that he'd be leaving us with the uncertainty of how anybody could do this? Is is that meant to actually enhance? the fear, and therefore make this even more evil, right? To have this lingering cloud that's out there of nobody knows why he did it, no one knows why Paddock did it, and so no one knows why anybody would do this again in the future. We can't stop the Paddocks of the future. Is that why he hid what's on his... Or is it because he had a, somebody had Confederates that were helping him or selling the guns or you know, something, right? I mean, there is still that possibility too, but... I haven't seen any evidence that there's any reason to believe that that's what's at play here. It seems to me he just didn't want us to know. And so in response to this, do we stop asking the question? Because do we not want to give the shooter, in a sense, his 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 dying mass murderer wish here, which is that we will sit around and never really know why he did it other than he's an evil maniac? Or do we keep trying to dig deeper and figure it out? I mean, I think we will keep digging, but... In a weird way, it's it, you can see what I'm saying. I think it it makes it it makes it even more unsettling for us, and that may be the intention of 
a, a sicko like Paddock and these other shooters as well, who, sure, there was some history of mental illness. Paddock did not have a real history of mental illness. And, I, and this is where people also say mental illness is it's a very imprecise term for, you know, uh, tens of millions of Americans deal with mental illness and they're loving, kind, absolutely trustworthy, wonderful people, right? I mean, so mental illness, it's, it's almost like, it's it's an unfair term to use when you're talking about somebody that's deeply psychotic and evil, right? But you know, mental illness can be somebody who's washing their hands a little too often because they're a little OCD. I mean, give me a break, right? It's not fair to use this terminology, but this is the terminology we're left with. Anyway, I, I went into this more than I expected to, but it's unsettling that we still have no answers here. That much I, I think we're all clear on. It's unsettling, we still don't know what the motive is for that Las Vegas shooting. I'm going to uh, take a turn here into some other stuff. I'm going to come back with some good news for you. How about that? Let's do this. Let's get to some good news. Cannon to the right of them. Cannon to left of them. Cannon in front of them. Volleyed and thundered. Stormed out with shot and shell. Boldly they rode and well. Into the jaws of death. Into the mouth of hell. Rode the 600. Flashed all their sabers bare. Flashed as they turned in air. Sabering the gunners there. Charging an army while all the world wondered, plunged in the battery smoke, right through the line they broke. Cossack and Russian reeled from the saber stroke, shattered and sundered. Then they rode back, but not, not the 600. Those of you who uh, like a bit of history or a bit of poetry will know that that is the narrative poem by uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson. About the charge of the Light Brigade. Why am I telling you about this? Because today, October 25th, 1854, is in fact the anniversary of that historical event. The charge of the Light Brigade, which described a uh, cavalry charge in the Crimean War, uh, where Lord James Cardigan took the Light Brigade cavalry up into uh, up against Russian artillery. And uh, this was at the Battle of Balaclava, like the thing that you pull over your head where you can just see your eyes, Balaclava, named for the place. Uh, but the Battle of Balaclava, which the British were winning, and then uh, Cardigan got these orders to attack and suffered 40% casualties as he charged into the Russian artillery with his, uh, with his cavalry. Uh, he did become a Cardigan, that is, the Lord. He survived as the lords tend to, and became something of a national hero back in the U.K. And the charge of the Light Brigade by uh, Tennyson uh, became a very, very famous poem, one which we talk about the glory of war or not. What is, what is it that he is trying to get at with this one? Was it glorious or was it foolhardy? Right? This is a question that they, uh, this is 6th, 7th grade English lit stuff. Right? This is one of these poems that every, I feel like every school, Child probably reads the Charge of Light Brigade at some point. But it was a, it was a real thing that happened. Battle of Balaclava, October 25th. Here we are, October 25th. We are timely on this show, just sometimes a couple of centuries or a century and change late. Um, but we are timely nonetheless. And I promised you good news. So let me say that first off, there is a very disconcerting trend here in New York City, whereby the mayor of New York City... Uh, would like to make Mondays meatless for school children. How this would benefit anybody, how anybody could think this is a good idea. I mean, these are growing boys and girls. They should, they should be eating 
chicken, red meat, all kinds of stuff. I will say one of my regrets in life, or not regrets, but one of the things that as, as I'm older now, the food that I was subjected to in school as a kid until college, a lot of it was just appalling. I mean, it, I can't imagine prison food is much better, and I, and I mean that. But the, uh, the food, or the, this idea that they should get rid of uh, meat on Mondays in school, that strikes me as foolhardy. Yeah, because kids need kids need look if you're a vegetarian you don't eat meat fine but you shouldn't ban it get rid of it in schools entirely I think it's a carbon footprint thing but they're saying it's a health thing but it's nonsense here's the good news because of some genetic engineering I think this started in China they were doing this they can now change how pigs deal with cold so that they burn fat to stay warm which changes the way that you raise pigs why would you care about any of this although some of you maybe actually have pigs. Uh, that you raise yourselves, and maybe you even get some of your meat that way. Pork is my favorite meat. I will say, all in. I know it's tough. There's a part of me that is saying, really, you're gonna you're gonna sell out steaks, you're gonna sell out cow meat like that. But I think pork is my favorite of all meats. And uh, the truth is that now they're saying that there might be better bacon on the horizon because it'll be leaner because of this genetic engineering. But is lean bacon better? That's a question for the ages. I think probably not. With that, my friends, with that thought-provoking analysis, Shields High.